You know, up to 1 Timothy chapter 6, that's where we'll get started this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, finishing out uh, our book and our series uh, before we head into uh, our Christmas series, which will also be uh, kicking off a new series that we will be in for a long time next week, but we'll talk about that uh, next week and really the week after that. We'll really talk a little bit more about that, but we will finish out 1 Timothy today and we will cover all of chapter uh, all of chapter 6, and uh, Paul is, is writing, closing out this letter to our young pastor Timothy, uh, and teaching us all about the things that we should value in life, teaching us uh, about the things that should matter to us. We're four days away now from Thanksgiving. I've long stated my personal policy that we begin Christmas music on November 1st in our house, so I don't know where you guys are on that, but that's where we start, it's November 1st. Of course, it was in the 80s on November the 1st, which was a little problematic because that didn't feel so much like Christmas. Uh, but now that we have dipped below freezing, uh, it's game on for all things Christmas for us, which includes Christmas movies, Christmas music, all of it. Uh, you don't have to wait till Friday. You are free to enjoy your Christmas whenever you want. In fact, if you would like to celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God, you can do that all year long. You don't have to wait until the day after Thanksgiving to start that. But for those of you that are just now getting into it, as you begin to watch those Christmas movies, uh, you're going to be inundated with one overwhelming theme in all of these Christmas movies that you are going to watch, whether it's about uh, Santa, whether it's about a man who goes bankrupt and gets really depressed, or about terrible parents that can't seem to find their youngest child. The message is the same in all of these, uh, in all of these movies. Uh, be grateful for what you have, especially your family. That's what the, the, the message is for every one of these Thanksgiving movies, every one of these Christmas movies. They all get there uh, in different ways, but it's basically going to be the same thing. Be grateful for what you have, uh, especially family. The true meaning of Christmas is found when you value the things that really matter. That's where they all go. Francis Chan has a, a quote that I think will serve us this morning, and uh, I'll I'll show you how these things go together. I'm not sure if it's his, but I've heard him say this. Uh, and it's one that I've said a few times here and I think about a lot. And he says, I'm not afraid of failing. I'm afraid of being successful at the things that don't really matter. And I think what, what all of these movies have in common and what that quote have in, in common is it's trying to drive us away from all these other things that would distract us and pull us back to the things that matter. And Paul is going to kind of give us the same kind of lesson this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He's just going to do it without all the plot. He's going to do it without all the, the story that goes with it. He's going to do it without all the burglars trying to get in the house. He's just going to go straight to the lesson, and he's going to say, this is what you need to know. Uh, and so he's, he's going to tell us straight up, here's some things in life where you're likely to make missteps. Here's uh, a few things in life where life is likely to turn and head into a different uh, direction. And he wants to make sure that we know what to expect. And so he, he kind of says, listen up. Uh, here's some things that you need to know. So let's, let's start with 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, and we're going to read 3 through 5 to kind of get, get, get our feet wet and get us into the text here. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an un 
unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So that's a mouthful that Paul lays out there for us, and Paul is going to go back to what he started with in this book. All the way back to chapter 1, if you go back to chapter 1, and he began telling Timothy to watch out for the false teachers. Watch out for those that are going to show up and they're going to try to spread a false uh, doctrine. And he comes full circle to address them again here at the end of this letter in chapter 6. And he's going to tell Timothy that these false teachers are marked by three main characteristics. And again, we don't know exactly what these false teachers are talking about. Uh, you know, we talked a lot about the, the temple of Artemis and things that are going on outside the church. But these false teachers, it seems, have kind of wormed their way into the church and were trying to uh, communicate some things within the church that, uh, that, that were ideas that were kind of starting to take root. And Paul is worried about those things. And he says, these teachers that come and they teach this doctrine, other than what Jesus taught, they have three main characteristics. One... Uh, they're arrogant. Two, they're always looking for a fight. And three, they're usually looking to make a quick buck. Those three things are kind of what define these false teachers here in Ephesus. So he says, Timothy, don't let these guys set up shop in your church. Timothy, don't let these guys get in there and start teaching these things. And here's how you know what to look out for. They're looking for these three things. Again, we don't know the plot to this story. We don't know the full backstory or what they're teaching, but we know what they love and we know what they crave. We know what they're trying to do. We know what marks them. We know what their lives are centered around and what they are driving towards. And so for us, this is a good word to consider for any church teacher. This is the the obvious application in in saying uh, those that would teach, these are things that you need to look out for, but I don't think it's a reach Uh, for us to draw this out a little bit further and kind of apply this to our own hearts and our own thoughts. This series has been called Surrounded, and the driving question has, has kind of gone like this. How do we live, how do we prepare, how do we function in a world that doesn't believe what we do, live like we do, or want what we want? How do we live in a world where everything that kind of marks us and makes us is not shared by those that are around us? And Paul is drawing out all of those things in these false teachers. He says they are living their lives in pursuit of the things that will ultimately fail them, if not outright destroy them. He says, so be wary of these teachers. Paul says, first things first, you identify them by their doctrine. What is it that they are teaching? What is it that they are laying out there? For us, this is a pretty simple starting point. We don't determine what we value. We we don't determine what it is that we strive for. We are not the ones that set that agenda. The Bible charts this out for us. Jesus showed us, and the Spirit confirms it. The Bible charts it out. Jesus showed it to us, and the Spirit confirms it. And when those three things don't line up together, then our doctrine won't line up either. And so, so what Paul is saying is, you need to make sure that you've got your doctrine correct and that those that would, would teach and that those, would, uh, it, those that are in your church, that they get those three things lined up. The Bible, Jesus, and the Spirit. 
And he says, our pursuit, whether we're talking about as a church here corporately or you individually, is built around one idea, and, and, and Paul puts that forward in verse 3. And that idea, he kind of sums that up as godliness. Godliness is what our lives are to be built around. But it gets, it gets more than that. So, so we don't get to decide what our lives are built on. We, we are given that by Paul, godliness. But even more to the point, we don't even get to decide what godliness is. We don't get to say, I don't think Jesus would say this, or I don't think he would do this, or I don't think he would judge in this way. We follow the scriptures. We see what the scriptures say, and then that is what we adhere to. We don't, we don't say, kind of come up with this general idea of what we think God is like. We don't come up with this general idea of what we think Jesus would do. We go to the word. And when we go to the word, then that informs us this is what God is like. This is what Jesus is like. This is why we gather and why we spend so much time doing what we're doing right now, every Sunday. And this is why you need to do this day in and day out in your own lives, checking your lives against what scripture teaches. You see, we don't get up here, I don't get up here and give a 20-minute, a 15-minute kind of devotional and give you kind of a rah-rah uh, pep speech to get you through the rest of the week. That's not my goal. I'm not trying to do that, one, because I wouldn't be very good at it, and two, because if I were to stand up here and do something like that, then ultimately what I'm trying to do is convince you to live a life that I give you a vision for, and I don't want that. I don't want you to live out the vision that I give you for your life. I want you to live out the vision that the scriptures give you for your life. So we spend time in the scriptures because they are what sets our agenda, not us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we've been bought with a price, that we are not our own, that we don't get to set the agenda, the goal, or the purpose for our lives. That has been determined for us. If we are followers of Jesus, if we call ourselves Christians, if we call ourselves worshipers of God, then we don't get to then say, and this is how I live this. We say, and how should I live this? And we go to the scriptures and let that settle that for us. God's word determines that, and godliness is the goal. For so many, when you get in a place where you are surrounded, whenever you get into a place where, where everything around you feels like it's against you, you're going you're gonna to go to one of two places. The default is, is going to be fight or flight, and some will run from the pressures of an outside world, and they will buckle under the weight of the culture and the moment. They will, or maybe they just buckle under the weight and the strain of life that has become something different than what you wanted it to be. And you begin to search out the world for relief. You begin to search out what the world offers that says, this will make everything better. And there is no end to the distractions that this world has for us. Nor is there an end to the compromises that it offers And see, the thing is, it doesn't have to look like outright rejection of everything that we do. It just has to look like a little bit different. We just got to compromise just a little bit. You just got to indulge just a little bit over here. You just got to give on this. And if you give on this little sticking point, then things will go better for you. Things will be better for you. That would be the flight response. Others, though, want to fight. And this seems to be who Paul has in mind when he's addressing uh, this text, 
conceited people full of their own ideas, their own agendas, and their own little gods, always in a fight and looking for another one. Friends, I'm not sure if I could, I could better describe the state of much of American Christianity than these couple of verses. It marks so much of the public discourse around our faith. Now, maybe this isn't what it's like whenever we start talking about individual lives and we start looking at individual churches, but when you talk about the public discourse around the Christian faith in our country, it is marked by these verses. It looks just like this. Maybe they've got their doctrine in an okay place, at least by the the technical letter of the law, but their lives don't reflect it. They, they've lined up their doctrine in a way where they can say, look, I'm going to the scriptures. I, I believe everything that the scriptures say, but their lives don't line up with that and they don't reflect any of those things. And so if your life doesn't match your doctrine, something has gone wrong somewhere. Where beliefs are held, actions should follow. But, but looking at what Paul lays out here, the actions that follow with so much of our, uh, of, in so many of our churches and around so much of our Christian faith in America today, then our actions don't look very much like what our doctrine states. And so, so for so much, we've begun to realize that, uh, for so many of us, we've begun to realize that, that, that our faith doesn't have the same kind of sway that it used to have over the culture. It doesn't hold the same kind of place of prominence where people feel like they have to kind of answer to what uh, our morality would say, what we get out of the book. The, the Christian faith itself uh, is, has lost its power, and, and, and very soon uh, the influence of our faith may essentially be gone from the public square. And the response has not been to pursue godliness in the wake of this cultural shift, It has not been a posture that resembles Jesus before Pilate, but more one that resembles Peter in the garden. Jesus says not a single word before Pilate and allows Pilate to kind of draw out the conclusion of who Jesus was. But Jesus rebukes Peter whenever he comes out to fight and cuts off the ear of the sword. And what does he tell Peter there in the garden? He says, if his kingdom were of this world... He would fight, but it is not. And so put away your sword, Peter. But for so many Christians today, I'm quite convinced they would pull out the sword if they had a chance and they felt like they could get away with it, quite literally. Uh, But even if they don't, they'll happily go looking for a fight. In fact, they feel like this is the mark of their faith, is if they go looking for a fight. Exactly what Paul says, go stirring up dissension, full of arrogance, and living in constant friction with the world. Now, don't hear me wrong here. The Bible tells us that we should be in the world, but not of the world. But that does not translate into, let me tell you why the world is wrong, and why we need to burn it all down, and why I so clearly have it all figured out, and no one else does. Friends, if we follow this teaching that what Paul lays out here, then this constant friction with our co-workers and our neighbors and those that do not share our faith, that is not the mark of faithful Christianity. And so many people have convinced you and convinced us that it is. That the mark of faithful Christianity is that we live at odds and at war with the world. 
our witness must look less like verses 4 and 5. Let me read this again. Puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. An unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. It has to look less like that and more like Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We have to make our lives mirror more of Galatians 5 and less of 1 Timothy chapter 6. We must let the Word of God teach us the aim of our lives. Paul then goes on in verse 6, and he's going to tell us what really sets us apart as true Christians. So let's read this in verse 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That one stings. There's no way to read that verse, those, that paragraph, and it not sting a little bit. Paul says, don't follow these teachers that are looking for fights, that are selling their souls for a dollar. Don't follow those that are chasing a little more money. You'll find your peace elsewhere. And Paul's advice here is, is nothing new for most of us. I'm not reading anything to you out of these verses. You're not reading anything in these verses that you likely haven't heard before. This phrase, money is the root of all kinds of evil, gets misquoted a lot. But the general idea is, is one that this, this, little, this little thing, money is the root of all kinds of evil, might be one of the most well-known phrases in all of Scripture. Even for those who, who've never set foot in a church and would never read a Bible, they know that little phrase, that little proverb right there, money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the plot line for a huge chunk of those Christmas movies you're going to watch. If you follow the plot line there, this will be a lot of what draws all of that. Don't, 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 get, caught up in all of, uh, don't get caught up in all of the money. We've heard this lesson thousands of times. There's nothing I can stand up here today. There's no creative way for me to teach this message to you in a way that you haven't heard it told to you already. You know the truth of this message. Don't let your heart be captured by money. Paul says that chasing money will, will, will likely hurt your, it will hurt your heart and the problems that money is supposed to solve are not going to go anywhere. He very much says more money, more problems. That the dollar that's supposed to give you everything, if you get it, it just might cost you everything. We all know this teaching. But goodness, when it comes to money, We've built an entire society around it, and most of us in here have built our lives around the pursuit of it. And there's no other way around that, or no other way to say that. There's no easy kind of like dodge on this. There's no easy solution for this either. Whenever there, the, the surrounding culture has built everything around the pursuit of money, it can be difficult to figure out how do you navigate that? How do you live within that world but not be of that world? And I could offer up a platitude and say that there's nothing wrong with having money so long as our money doesn't have us. That's true enough. 
But that's kind of like saying there's nothing wrong with a fire in your house so long as the fire doesn't burn the house down. Okay, that's true, but by the time that you realize the danger of what you're playing with, you've already lost the house. You see, it's, it's one thing for me to say, don't, don't, don't fall in love with money because of what it can do to you. But the reality is, by the time we realize and we've, we've worked our way through our lives in pursuit of this money, it's too late. The kids are grown, the marriage is stale, the job is a pain, and the dreams that you started with have all vanished in a mist. Paul says, be wiser than that. Know the power of money and protect your heart. Find your contentment in the basics. And don't spend a life pursuing money. Spend it pursuing godliness. In this and only this will you find great gain. Honestly, I, you can't lay out a better text for Thanksgiving week, right? You can't lay out something better for us to kind of draw our hearts there. He says, if we just have the basics of what we need, we will be content in that. And why are we content in that? Because we have godliness. And godliness is for great gain. Whereas the pursuit of money and wealth, well, that will take your soul to places that you never wanted it to go. And it will hurt more than you could ever imagine. I want to move from here. I want to go toward the end of the chapter and then we'll come back to the middle of the chapter. So I want you to, we'll come back to verse 11 here in a minute. But I want to I show you how, 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 how Paul, uh, in verse 17, kind of re-emphasizes a lot of what we just said there. He's going to come back to much of what we've seen. And then we'll come back to kind of the middle section there uh, in verse 11. So verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul gets to the end of the chapter, and he kind of sort of does say what I just said a minute ago. He, he basically does say you can have money, you just can't let money have you. That's kind of what, that's how I would sum up a little bit of what he says there. He says, don't put your hope in that money. Don't flaunt yourself and that money because it can and it will fail you. But if you have money, use it. Use it to do good. Don't hesitate to bless others with it. That's what it's there for. God has given to you that you might help meet the needs of others. Pursue those good works and put your hope in God. That is his message. He says, don't chase after money, but if you have the money, use it for good things and for good works. And when you do that, you will show that your hope is not in that money, but your hope is in something better. And that will not fail you, and that will truly bring you life. And then Paul gives some closing remarks here to Timothy, kind of a rushed ending, uh, if you ask me, but a reminder for Timothy not to fall into the debates and the nonsense that surrounds him. Verse 20, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. 
So he ends it this way, I think because he, he fully expected he'd be back with Timothy soon. He didn't need to have any long goodbyes. He, he thought he'd be back there uh, and, and, and serving right beside Timothy. And he ends it in this way. And he tells Timothy to guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, and we've got a lot more to talk about whenever we come back to verse 11, but I want you to realize how Paul views the gospel that has taken root in Timothy's life here. This is not something that is just signed, sealed, and delivered and locked away. And don't get me wrong, I believe that whenever God takes hold of us and whenever we give our lives to to, to Jesus, he holds on to us, and that salvation is not lost, but what is clear is that that, that Paul recognizes when this gospel takes root in Timothy's life, Timothy now has a job to do. Timothy now has actions that follow. He has to guard that deposit that has gone into his heart. He tells Timothy, do the work of protecting what you have received. Don't let it get corrupted. Don't let it get misrepresented. Don't let it get confused. Don't let it get broken by the arrogance and the false teaching that is around you. Hold fast and protect what you have received. God may not have called us to pick a fight, but he sure isn't calling us to lay down that which is most valuable to us either. The gospel is what defines us, and we will not let it be shut down, dismissed, or manipulated for the causes of those who want to use it for power, politics, or personal gain. We guard it and ensure that our hope is not found in any of those things. We guard the trust of the gospel that has been handed down to us. That is work. That requires that we we do the work that is there. We ensure that we don't chase after any of those other distractions that the world would lay out there for us. We don't chase after any of those other things that uh, that have been put before us that have said, go have this. We don't chase those things because we are doing the work of protecting the hope that we have. And now with all that being laid out as the bookends to the heart of Paul's message for us this morning, let's go back to verse 11. So, so we've got the bookends here. We've got the top where Paul warns us against the teachers, where Paul warns us against money. We've got the bottom where Paul comes back and he says, but if you do have the money, here's what you do with it. Guard what you've been given. And then we have this paragraph right here in the middle that that is just a beautiful paragraph. So just let me just lay out this challenge that Paul gives for us and just listen to the, uh, the beauty of what he writes here. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's telling us how to fight that good fight. He's not saying, go fight the fight out in the public square and pick a fight. He's saying, this is how you do it. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and to Christ, uh, and to Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 
such a beautiful, sweeping climax to, to Paul's instruction that he gives here. It feels like, to me, whenever I read this, it, it feels like, like Paul's starting to make these kind of passion pleas to Timothy. He's, he's thinking about all the challenges that Timothy has there in Ephesus against these false teachers, against fighting and quarreling, against uh, chasing after money, kind of just like ticking these things off and saying, okay, I've got to warn him about this, I've got to warn him about this, I've got I've to warn him about this. And then he kind of kind of gets caught up in the moment as he's, as he's talking and he, he turns his, his heart, he turns his, his attention to Jesus and, and, and holding fast to the gospel that we've been given. And he just kind of gets, gets carried away with this incredible doxology as he considers the greatness of who Jesus is, as he considers the greatness of what it is that they are doing in planting that church in Ephesus at all and creating and, and, and calling forward worshipers of God. And so he gets carried away. He, he moves from like this, this very like uh, pointed instruction and these pointed warnings. And then he, as he begins thinking and talking about Jesus, he just gets swept away in the majesty of who Jesus is. This is the part of the Christmas movie when the main character has learned the lesson about, about loving and pursuing the wrong things. When the narrator kind of takes over right at the end of the movie and explains the obvious uh, the already obvious uh, uh, lesson that we should have learned. And the, 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 the camera kind of moves from the close-up of the main character and it kind of begins to zoom out. And then you see all the family that is around and then it kind of zooms out and you see his home set in this neighborhood and it continues to zoom out until you look up and you have this sweeping panorama that kind of communicates the, the grandeur and the beauty of all that surrounds our main character. That before he was so distracted he had not taken the time to notice. That's kind of how this little paragraph works right here. Paul is, is pulling out, the camera is pulling out, and his instructions uh, throughout the New Testament are that we get our perspective right. And so just as that camera pulls out, Paul is pulling out and he's saying, you've got to have the right perspective if you're going to avoid this false teaching, if you're going to avoid all of these temptations, if you're going to avoid all of this money and all of these other things that are surrounding you in this culture, Timothy, you've got to have the right perspective because you can't withstand the onslaught of what is around you. And so this is true of us as well. Proper perspective is essential for us if we want to be able to withstand all that comes at us on a day-to-day basis. And that perspective is rooted in verse 15 and 16. I'll read it again. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Men. You see, when we rightfully know God for who He is and place Him on the throne that is rightfully His, that sets the order for everything else that follows. That sets for us the priority for the rest of our lives. This goes back to my favorite quote from Tozer that I say here all the time. What we think when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because when we properly see God for who he is, everything else flows from that. It sets everything else in order. It orders our hearts. It orders our days. And it orders our purpose. 
Put God where he belongs and the rest falls into place. Put something else in that throne, be it yourself, be it money, be it a career, be it any other thing that you want to put there, and everything falls apart. Everything begins to self-destruct. What Paul says leading up to these verses is that, is that a life that reflects the truth of these verses, a life that reflects the truth of these verses, doesn't pursue fights and arguments and exalt ourselves, but it is a life that reflects righteousness, not self-righteousness. This is not, this is not standing up and saying, look at how much better I am. This is a pursuit of righteousness that is outside of us. It is by its definition, not self-righteousness. It is not of our own. But a life that pursues these, pursues righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, that is the fight that we are called to. That is what it is that we are called to do. That's the fight that we wake up every day and we are ready to go to war with. Not with the world, but with our own sin and our own hearts. That's the fight we are called to. So this morning, as we get ready to head into Thanksgiving, as we, as we, as we, uh, as we get ready to watch all of these Christmas movies, as we get ready to sing all of our songs, I just want to ask you, as you head into Thanksgiving, and you examine your own heart and your own gratefulness this morning, can you heed Paul's call to contentment this morning? Have you... Have you done what he said? Have you found yourself in, you, in, in a place where you can say, he is enough because he is all that I need? Can you heed Paul's call to generosity, to be open-handed and generous with what you have been given? Can you heed his call to gentleness and humility and avoid the need to assert yourself and your agenda into every conversation? Can you heed his call to righteousness, to love, and to faith? Can you make alongside Jesus himself the good confession of the greatness of God and his glory as he sits on the throne? Can you confess your failings, your sinfulness, your tendency to all the things that Paul warns us about here? You know, part of the reason why all of these things kind of stand out to us is because we all know our own hearts and our own tendency to these things. Can you confess them and then trust in the grace and the mercy of Jesus for forgiveness? If you can do those things, then you might have a step ahead of all of those Christmas movies this year. Family and friends are beautiful things. Do not misunderstand me. They are truly profound things to be grateful for, and I hope that you are this week and the rest of this month as we head into to Advent and Christmas. Make, make no mistake about it, though. The true meaning of Christmas, Thanksgiving, and every other day of our lives will always come back to Him who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, and whom no one has ever seen or can see, and to Him be honor an eternal dominion. And if your lives are ordered around that truth, that perspective, that reality, if your lives are ordered around that pursuit, then we will never have to worry if we've been successful at the wrong thing, that we've wasted our lives pursuing things that don't matter, 
For we will have spent our lives in the pursuit of the one thing that gives us great gain. The one thing that we can truly hold on to. The eternal life to which we are called. Will you pray with me? Father, it is our confession this morning that each of us in our own ways, in our own hearts, in our own sinfulness, chase after things that do not matter. That we spend our lives chasing after things that will ultimately fail us. Whether that's relationships, whether that is, is an arrogance and the, 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 the pride that comes with being right and, and knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge, or whether that be the pursuit of money and stuff and comfort. For each of us, that looks a little bit different, that feels a little bit different. But Father, it is our confession this morning, and it is our desire this morning, that we order our hearts correctly as we head into this week of thanksgiving, that we would be grateful not just for what it is that you have given us, not just for the gift, but we would be most grateful for the giver. And that we would put you on the throne squarely where you belong. And that with our knees bowed, give the good confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.